Welcome to a very special episode of Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We're going to be discussing the Supreme Court case involving the Trump administration's attempt to rescind DACA, the Obama-era policy that allows undocumented young adults, dreamers, who came to the United States as children to apply for protection from deportation. But it's our great good fortune to have for this discussion the presidents of three of the countries and the world's leading universities whom, as you'll hear, have a keen interest in DACA. But as we tape, the country is in full coronavirus crisis. The United States has now passed 35,000 cases and 500 deaths, with cases continuing to double every two to three days, and New York having more deaths per capita than Italy. So I want first to take the valuable opportunity to ask the leaders of three large, diverse, and creative communities, how they are approaching the virus, and then move on to discussion of DACA. So let me introduce our guests and then ask them to discuss the virus for a few minutes before turning back to the Supreme Court. We have, in alphabetical order or from east to west, first, Chris Eisgruber, who has served as Princeton University's 20th president since July 2013, He previously was Princeton's provost for nine years, beginning in 2004, after joining the Princeton faculty in 2001 as the director of the Program in Law and Public Affairs, where we met. He's one of the nation's leading constitutional scholars. His books include Constitutional Self-Government and Religious Freedom and the Constitution. Welcome, Chris, and I hope it's okay. I've known two of our guests for over 20 years, so I'm hoping it's okay to use first names. Chris, thanks for being here. It's definitely okay to use first names, Harry. It's a, <laughs> it's a pleasure to be on the program. Thanks. Next, John Jenkins, the 17th president of the University of Notre Dame, now in his fourth five-year term. He's the uh, FDR of the university community. He's been there since 2005. He previously served as Notre Dame's vice president and associate provost and has been a member of Notre Dame's Department of Philosophy since 1990. Welcome, John. It's great to be with you and great to be with Janet and Chris. Finally, Janet Napolitano, the 20th president of the University of California and the first woman to serve in that role. She leads a university system of more than 285,000 students, 227,000 faculty and staff, an operating budget of nearly $40 billion and 2 million living alumni. Janet came to her position after a very distinguished career in government, serving as the U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security from 2009 to 2013 as governor of Arizona from 2003 to 2009, as attorney general of Arizona before that, and as U.S. attorney for the District of Arizona from 1993 to 1997 when we first met. Welcome, Janet. Thank you, Harry. So let me just open the floor to ask each of you to talk for a few minutes about what you're doing in response to this unprecedented crisis and how the measures you've adopted have been received by the community. Well, Harry, I'll just jump in from Princeton. I, you know, I think uh, 
the measures we've undertaken are probably uh, comparable, at least with regard to our student body, to what my peers are doing uh, here at Princeton. Uh, about a little more than two weeks ago now, we indicated that we were be taking all of our classes online in order to uh, get as many of our students uh, back home and off the campus as uh, we could. We undertook that in anticipation that we would be starting to see community spread in this part of the country and uh, on our campus and at college campuses. Given the close proximity in which students and faculty work were places where that spread could occur very quickly. I'm glad we took those measures when we uh, did. The state of New Jersey is now under very severe restrictions. Uh, we have about 90% of our students who have gone home. Uh, our classes uh, are now operating online for those students for about a day into that process after our spring break. And so far, it seems to be going well. Uh, most of our research is suspended and our our staff, to the extent they can, are, are working from home. So it's a tough crisis. Obviously, our, our researchers who are concerned with matters that may be relevant to the coronavirus are continuing to do their research. But unlike uh, Janet and the UC system, for example, we don't have a, a set of hospitals here at uh, Princeton or a medical school. That obviously presents challenges and, and crises of its own. I follow on, Chris, because we're in much similar situation. We don't have a med school, and we're very much a residential campus, so our students are home. We did online education uh, today and uh, yesterday, and um, seems to be going well. It, it is interesting that it will be one of the most massive experiments in online education that we've seen, so we'll learn something from that on how to teach students. I, I would also mention, I think I'm sure my colleagues are dealing with this too, but like the rest of the country, there will be a, a large economic fallout from this crisis. And uh, we are looking forward to that one at our university, and I'm sure my colleagues are as well. And Janet, your problems are probably unique. Well, um, the, you know, the UC system is 10 campuses, five large academic health centers, hospitals, and it's like my colleagues here, our undergraduates are on remote learning now. We have or are in the process of uh, decanting the dorms uh, for all students who have a place to go. We have some students who uh, will remain because they, they have no other place to go. Uh, but we we want to create space in the dorms because the governor of California has asked us to contribute uh, rooms to house surge populations from the virus. We're all working remotely using various technologies, and uh, that seems to be going well. And the, and the remote learning for our students uh, and that conversion seems to have gone well so far. At the hospitals, we, like many hospitals around the country, are dealing with trying to get a supply chain of masks and personal protective equipment for our healthcare workforce who are on the, the front lines. And that has presented a series of logistical challenges that we are trying to work our way through. But we're quite concerned because in California, uh, we expect a surge of patients in the next week or two, and we, we need to be ready to provide care for them. So lots of adaptations, lots of challenges. And uh, like my colleagues on the phone, uh, at some point, we are going to have to reckon with the financial fallout from all of this. 
You know, I believe UCSD, which is in my backyard, has at least uh, a couple confirmed cases. Do others of you have among your university populations any confirmed cases? Yes, we have several spread throughout the system, and we fully expect more. We just because we're so big, it's just you know the by just by virtue of uh, the way this disease is transmitted. Chris and John. Oh, the, the, this virus is starting on the coast and moving toward the, the middle of the country. So we're behind the others. We've only had a couple confirmed cases, and they were from a student who was in Europe and uh, another staff off campus. So we're waiting. I'm sure it will come to that, but uh, we don't have the high numbers yet. I would not say there are high numbers, but uh, but we do have a small number of cases, uh, both in among students and among uh, staff members. And again, as Janet said, we expect that to grow. Are there any plans afoot to dedicate any of your resources, physical or otherwise, to the effort to combat the virus, makeshift hospitals and the like? Yes. Well, Harry, if you're talking about uh, research on the virus itself. We have lots of research being done at labs throughout the system, and that's one area of research activity that uh, has not been cut back or shut down. That's that's really proceeding. And then we are uh, converting our ambulatory clinics to COVID-19 uh, housing and doing a number of other conversions in expectation of a, a rise in, in uh, patient population. Got it. This is just a, a small postscript to the overall issues, but I remember that Chris, in one of his first addresses to the community, expressed some skepticism about the utility of the online education, the importance of the sort of personal relationship. So it is a kind of forced experiment for everyone down to, you know, my kids and throughout primary school and high school and college. Harry, what I would add, though, is right now what we're doing is leveraging a lot of the personal connections that these students have uh, developed with our faculty over the course of the year, um, which I think can help to make um, what would be a very high-touch form of online education better. So, you know, to give a personal example of this, I have a senior thesis advisee. She's been someone I've been advising over the course of a year now. Uh, we can finish that up online in a way that wouldn't have been possible without those connections. But there are still things that are, are lost. So, for example, that particular student had a kind of theatrical performance adjunct to what her thesis research was, and obviously, when you go online, you lose that. You know, I, I would also add to what I, I agree with Chris about the limits of online learning. It, it is a great tool, but I don't think it will replace being here in person. And, and just the sense of, which I'm hearing from our students, the tremendous sense of loss from not being with their peers, from losing those relationships that really are part of the education they receive, uh, the conversations they have, the interactions. It, it, it's an impoverished experience. And if you ask our students, they will tell you that right now. That's a great point. Um, just one last question on the virus. Undergraduate years are kind of emotionally volatile under the best of circumstances. What's your sense of the kind of anxiety factor among the student bodies at the at your institutions? It's pretty high. 
They don't really know what to expect. You know, they were kind of suddenly uh, removed from the college experience they were having, as John just described, and basically sent home with their laptops and told to keep learning. So, you know, we've done some things to make mental health services available online to our students. We had already started that before the COVID-19 epidemic happened, but uh, we've really tried to put those services on steroids. I would just agree with that. You know, this is I, I don't, this are wonderful young people we deal with, but it's an anxious generation, and they're more anxious now. I'm I'm most concerned about our seniors who have to go into a job market that's quite uncertain, and uh, um, so a tremendous challenge for them. But for all of them, I think it's a time of uh, of heightened anxiety. Graduate students are particularly impacted. Conferences, interviews that they had scheduled. Um, have all been canceled. The work many of them are undertaking in in pursuit of their degrees has has been made more difficult. Doing the field work they had planned is is more difficult. So I think uh, we're paying particular attention to our graduate student population. Harry, I would just add, I think this is a stressful time for all of us, including our uh, students. Human engagement and human contact really matter to uh, well-being. We're, we're very aware of that and trying to do some things uh, in addition to the uh, sorts of things that Janet and John have already described to create virtual community for our students. So we have an office that is trying to build community for those who want it online. But as John said earlier, when he was talking about the educational experience, um, it's not a, a substitute for uh, the kind of community that you can get when you can actually bring people together. So it's a tough period. And I think we have to recognize that as universities and as a society. It's not just the anxiety, but somehow multiplied by the strangeness of it. It seems to be in just completely uncharted territory. All right. Well, thank you for those comments about what you're, how you're handling the virus. So on to DACA. We're in the midst of a Supreme Court term with an unusual number of blockbuster cases. And given the definitive rightward tilt of the court, in the wake of the appointments of Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, the next few months could reshape the law in a series of fundamental areas. And, you know, as we know, the court's decisions, while anchored in law, often speak to and help shape the bedrock values to which we are committed as a nation. And the DACA case seems to be one of those. It was Janet Napolitano who initiated the DACA program as Secretary of Homeland Security in 2012. Over 700,000 so-called DREAMers have obtained protection from deportation under the program, were able to emerge from the shadows and work legally here, have access to benefits and the like. But the program got caught in the crosshairs of President Trump's hardline stance toward immigration. And two years ago, the administration announced that it wanted to end the program. That prompted a series of lawsuits challenging the decisions, including separate suits in which both the University of California and Princeton were parties. And three of those have now been consolidated in the Supreme Court. And that was the oral argument we heard last November. So among the many passionate defenders of DACA, I think uh, American colleges and universities have led the charge. And Janet, Chris, and John's institutions have been front and center. And it bears noting, by the way, just the three of you 
represent, besides the most among the most renowned universities in the world, a, a cross-section of large and small, rural and urban, red and blue, secular and religious, and private and public educational institutions. Janet, I think you have pride of place here for your intensive involvement with DACA from literally day one. Many cases could compete for your and the university's attention. What was so important about DACA that you poured your all the resources and your heart and soul into this effort? Well, I'm, I'll start with when I was Secretary of Homeland Security. And when you're DHS secretary, of course, one of your responsibilities is to enforce our nation's immigration laws. And uh, that is a very complicated endeavor. And we increasingly found that uh, we had this group of young people brought here typically before they were six years old who had grown up in the United States, really knew only the United States as home, but they were undocumented. Congress had tried a couple of times to pass legislation to uh, deal with this particular group. Uh, Congress was unsuccessful. So, you know, I turned to our team and I and said, you know, what can we do? And uh, using the theory of prosecutorial discretion, we established DACA. We got agreement from the White House. In fact, DACA was announced by President Obama from the Rose Garden. We got sign-off from Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. And, you know, we didn't know day one whether we'd have 50 or 500 or 5,000. And, of course, as you noted, Harry, uh, there are about 750,000 DACA recipients out there. We uh, at the University of California estimate, and I think this is a conservative number that Uh, We have some 1,700 DACA recipients in our undergraduate student body. When the Trump administration, and it was done by Attorney General Sessions, announced that they were going to rescind the program because it was illegal, and that was followed up then by a memo from the DHS secretary, it just seemed to me that the way they had gone about this decision and their basis of thought that the program was illegal from the get-go, both were so wrong that they needed to be challenged. And so we were able to obtain counsel, uh, Covington and Burling, who is uh, handling the case pro bono for us, and the Board of Regents of the University of California. I think we were the first university to actually file suit, but uh, it's been great, great to have many colleagues in the field. Oh, well, let me just ask. So, well, first, I want just a quick follow up for listeners. So by prosecutorial discretion, I think the principle here is, look, there's a lot of undocumented people out there. Let's not make it a priority to go after these relatively innocent and productive members of our community. Let's just, as prosecutors often do, decide to go after more serious folks. But you say you felt this way, but the university came in. I, for I, John and Chris, what's, what's involved in getting a whole university to adapt a position? I assume that it's not just what the president thinks. There's a, a real process involved here in bringing the community to a consensus. H- how does something like that even work? 
You know, I, I do. It's a good question, Harry, and because I, I'm conscious of not of avoiding speaking uh, in my position, simply my own personal views that I speak for the university. But we're a university, the Notre Dame is a university that was founded by French and Irish immigrants in 1842. For the first century, at least, I think a large portion, if not most, most of the students were first or second generation immigrants. Uh, there was a nativist mood in the country in the latter part of the 19th century that similar to the similar in ways to the current time that made um, life difficult for those people. So it's part of who we are. We're, we were founded as an immigrant institution. Secondly, I say you mentioned, you know, we're a religious institution, we're a Catholic institution. And um, the, um, the Hebrew scriptures called Old Testament by Christians is, is clear. I mean, that the obligation to help the widow, orphan, and stranger is, is central to the faith. And, and Jesus kind of took that further and said, you know, you, uh, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome yeah. me. Uh, as often as you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. It's, it, you see that in Pope Francis. It, it's, it's central to um for for us for those who share our faith to reach out to the stranger to care uh for the person who's an alien and and I see that in in these daca um young people who have done nothing wrong who simply find themselves in a situation where they're undocumented and so it's very much comes from who we are i guess the final thing i'll say uh, and i'm sure uh, janet and chris could say the same you know for us these aren't just statistics there are students there you know i know the names of these kids and there have tremendous challenges in their lives and so you know, we're in the business of teaching young people, and it is our obligation. It's it's sort of part of who we are to help these these young people. So, for all those reasons, I felt that this was so core to who we are as an institution that it it was important. It is important to speak uh, prominently and loudly on this question. You know, Harry, in a way that I think John has captured well, this is much more about uh, what our values are and what we stand for uh, than about particular processes that have to be uh, gone through. Uh, You know, as a matter of our kind of strategic planning at the university and discussions with the board, uh, one of the things that we recognize about our values is that as we seek world-class excellence in teaching and research, that depends on finding talent from every sector of society and from every part of the world. We have been uh, a nation that has depended on attracting uh, talented immigrants to the United States Virtually from our inception, John Witherspoon, one of our founding presidents in the 18th century, was recruited from Scotland. The university's uh, quality uh, stepped up tremendously when Albert Einstein and a set of other Jewish refugees came to Princeton in the 1930s. And if you look at our faculty today, uh, roughly about 30 percent of them are uh, foreign nationals. And that doesn't count the people like me who are first generation Americans and the children of immigrants We've taken strong stands in our political advocacy around a number of different immigration uh, issues, not just DACA, but, for example, uh, in favor of the beneficiaries of temporary protected status, uh, which affects both our uh, student body and our staff, uh, and the need to have an immigration process that uh, smoothly process the visas for the faculty and students that we're trying to attract from around the 
the world. We saw DACA uh, as involving in a way that uh, John and uh, Janet have put very well, a set of very deserving people who were bringing tremendous talent to the uh, university and a legal issue where we thought by uh, intervening, we could make a difference. Got it. And so all, really all three of you have you know, put front and center these kinds of moral or ethical considerations. You know, Janet mentioned what's a core legal issue in the case, which is that when the attorney general Sessions argued or announced that DACA was illegal, uh, that was probably both mistaken and a, and a legal flaw in different respects. But did the law play and the kind of legal landscape play any role in the initial decision? Or did you all just decide, you know, it was the right thing and then just hire the best lawyers to make the best legal arguments? Absolutely, the law played a role in it, uh, Harry, at least for us. And as I said, we've taken a number of advocacy positions. The decision that we were going to uh, follow the lead of uh, the California system and file a suit depended on our judgment that there were things that we could add by being an independent litigant in that alongside Microsoft and uh, one of our extraordinary alumni, Maria Perales Sanchez of the Princeton class of 2018, um, who agreed to be a named plaintiff uh, at some risk to herself in the in the case. Uh, I, I also want to mention our uh, outstanding general counsel here, Ramona Romero. Uh, it was she who brought this uh, to me, and uh, we began a discussion as we talked about how to support our students on the campus, uh, where we felt there were not only legal grounds that could succeed in the court, but there would be advantages to having uh, another set of uh, litigants pursuing these avenues as the cases went forward. I would say that as someone deeply involved in the creation of DACA and as an attorney myself, it seemed to me there was something inherently wrong with how the administration had gone about rescinding it. And, you know, so far, five courts, five lower courts in the United States have agreed with our legal analysis that the administration's rescission of DACA was violative of the Administrative Procedures Act. At the Supreme Court, however, you know, one of the, the things I hope the justices keep in mind is are the human values and the humans who are directly impacted by their decision. Each of them has a very compelling story about um, what they're contributing to the United States and why it is just unjust and really inconsistent with American values as well as law for them to now be suddenly uh, subject to uh, removal and deportation. By the way, in, in general university life, do people know who the DACA students are? Chris mentioned you're the plaintiff who came forward. In general, are they just like any other student until this came about? They don't want it known. I mean, that's you kind of have a sense of the precariousness of their lives, that they're afraid to make it known. Now, I'm sure their close friends know it, and, and some of our students have become more active, and so they're recognized as, as DACA. But that, that's, you know, it's, it's heart-wrenching to see these young people who are, frankly, live in fear about uh, their status. Chris mentioned the the talent principle, which I think uh, figures especially prominently in the in the arguments you've advanced. You know, for when you're trying to convince a, a court, I think 
each of you made a sort of amalgam of, of arguments of including ones that say the university's self-interest, you know, is really strongly in, engaged here. We're not, it's, this is not just the right thing to do, but it's, it's the practical good thing to do. Can, can you, um, uh, you know, elaborate on, on that idea about why you really care in a quote unquote selfish way that the program continue? You know, I'm happy to say a little about that, Harry. And in some ways, that argument in particular, I think, is is important for understanding the context of the case. It's also very important to the legislative uh, argument that I think all three of us continue to press on the Hill. But great institutions and this country depend on being able to uh, attract uh, extraordinary talent and invest in that talent. From a self-interested uh, perspective, we have benefited tremendously from having these students on our campus. Some of them, I think, are not known to their peers as DACA students. Others as uh, are and decide to uh, come forward, and their experiences become an important part of the learning conversation at the university. And they are just tremendously uh, able people who have a lot to contribute to the United States as well as to our university. That's the argument, first and foremost, that we press when we go to Capitol Hill, because whatever happens in this case, ultimately, uh, the livelihoods and the security of these individuals will depend on getting a legislative solution that gets them a path to citizenship. And I think the arguments for that should be overwhelming on uh, both sides of the aisle, even in this polarized time. Obviously, in our case, we made a much narrower argument that Judge Bates, I think, uh, rightly accepted. Yeah, and I, and I would say, you know, for our DACA population at the University of California, many are known to uh, their fellow students. Many choose not to be known. We have uh, undocumented student centers on most of our campuses. Uh, we're providing free legal services to our DACA recipients. So we try to provide as much support as we can. But from a talent perspective, these are young people who, you know, they've done everything necessary to earn admission to the University of California, which is not an easy thing. And each of them brings their own special talents and their own special life stories. And as Chris said, you know, they, they really help enrich the, uh, the diversity and the meaningfulness of uh, the conversations held on campus. All three of you in different statements have have emphasized not just the self-interested position, but something almost in between the, the, the sense that, as you just said, Janet, look, they came to the university, they accepted your offer. I'd quote John here, you accepted our invitation to come to Notre Dame. You are now part of our family, and we will do everything we can to ensure that you complete your education at Notre Dame. I mean, in a way, you are casting yourselves as, as, you know, protectors of those within your community against, uh, you know, hostile political force that's looking to come in and uh, short circuit their education. Our business is developing the potential of young people. That's what we do. And we do that uh, because it helps our economy, all that, but it helps, you know, it is just a good thing to do in itself. And when you have these young people, 
you know, you, you sort of, you care about them. You care about their well-being. You care about their potential. And so it sort of it does violence uh, to who we are as institutions if, if they're seen as somehow marginalized or somehow not worthy of, of being here. So I, I think that's part of it. But I, I'd echo to what I think Chris said earlier. This is America. This is how we became what we are. We welcomed people from all parts of the world. We made them part of this country. And so not to not to support these young people, again, who've done nothing wrong, who simply want an education, want to be part of this country, does violence to this country, I think, and what it stands for at its best. Well said. I think that the, the general arguments in the different briefs kind of started as sort of self-interested principle, but talk about then them as members of family. But I, I saw there a very strong strain of exactly this, just the inconsistency with bedrock American values. Is that, by the way, that kind of enunciation of what matters for American values, something that you think universities are particularly able to articulate or, or advance? How does that kind of fit with the mission of the university, the uh, articulation of basic American values? I remind our constituencies, you know, we're called the Fighting Irish <laughs> because that, that was originally a slur, you know, these brawling drunken Irish, right. and it was kind of embraced. But that's how we got here. That's who we are. And, and I think once you make that point, they're reminded of their ancestors. And uh, so uh, I, I haven't found it a, a tough case to make with any part of our constituency, frankly. You know, I'd agree with that, Harry. And I would say whether or not we're particularly good at making the case, we have a particular responsibility to uh, make the case. We we have a responsibility to, to make it because it is so important to uh, who we are both in terms of the uh, how we achieve the the excellence that we uh, aim at and uh, how we carry out this mission that John has described so well of developing uh, human potential. Yeah, and but I would just add, there's something special, I think, about a university mission and the ability to be reflective and thoughtful about the American enterprise and, and the international enterprise that I think gives a, a special impact. And, you know, the, the three of you are here, but there were many, many, many universities involved in different ways. I think over over 200 were in the fray. I wanted to ask, was there any attempt to kind of coordinate positions among your, among other universities and colleagues? You kind of take this, we'll take that. And what elements of strategy were there uh, in the court for the participation of so many different higher education institutions? You know, Harry, I would just say from our standpoint, we ended up suing along with our uh, courageous graduate, Maria Perales Sanchez, whom I mentioned earlier, and Microsoft. And the the three of us were the, the plaintiffs in the case. A number of other universities came in as uh, amici in the case. And, and obviously, we were very grateful for that and for the coordination that uh, was involved in putting that together. Uh, I would say from our standpoint, we were also very appreciative of uh, Microsoft's partnership in this. Because all the things that we've been talking about, about uh, the importance of uh, talent and enabling good, honest people to flourish uh, are an important value for them uh, as well. And I think reminding the court of that uh, was a very valuable thing to be able to do. 
in terms of uh, coordination, by the time we got to the Supreme Court, there were three separate cases that were consolidated for oral argument. And the lead lawyers for all the lead plaintiffs in the various cases had, you know, quite a bit of discussion as to how the oral argument would be handled. We petitioned the court to allow two people to argue. Uh, um, Normally, of course, there's only one advocate per side, and uh, we were allowed two and and then uh, worked out an agreement amongst ourselves as to who would be the two to present at the court, and they then worked out between them which parts of the argument they would handle. I know you attended the argument, and uh, so I think you stayed involved to an unusual degree all the way through. Let's talk a little bit about the oral argument. What impressions did you have, and what was your thoughts about what the court's leanings or concerns might have been? I will say uh, I'm always reluctant to read too much into oral arguments. I think you and I have both seen a lot of them and know that the justices use them for different purposes. I think the challenge in this oral argument where there were two different kinds of narratives uh, running through it, one is the human story that we've talked a lot about in the course of this conversation, and the other was the very uh, technical legal set of arguments about the circumstances under which uh, a government is restricted from changing how it exercises prosecutorial discretion or or doesn't. So justices uh, pushed very hard on that second uh, technical line of argument. You know, we'll get a decision uh, sometime. It could be this month, sometime uh, over the next few months. You know, I continue to be hopeful that we will get an outcome that protects our students, although I also continue to know that regardless of what happens in this case, we need to press for a legislative solution. Yeah, I want to end with some thoughts about that, what happens if the court holds for the administration. But Jana, let me just ask you, having been there, did did you feel as if the the human stakes of the program and the case were were nevertheless in the argument that the court was aware and sensitive to the broader importance of the program. I think uh, Justice Breyer, in one of his questions, actually had added up uh, all of the amici who had filed briefs in the case. It was really an astounding number that kind of illustrated the breadth of support and value that uh, people place on DACA. And then Justice uh, Sotomayor had some very pointed questions about the human interest in the case. It was more than a technical reading of the Administrative Procedures Act, but some of the other justices were very concerned, uh, as Chris alluded, to do those legal issues and, you know, what is the authority of the executive in these circumstances, uh, and did uh, the Trump administration act within its authority? So um, I think it's hard to read uh, where the court will uh, ultimately come down. And like both of you, I've seen a lot of oral argument, and I know that cases often turn out very differently than you thought they would at the oral argument. So we're, we're all waiting to see what happens. 
John, as the non-lawyer in the group, did you have any particular impressions? Uh, I'm not sure if you were there, but I I know you would have followed it about, did it seem very, you know, abstract and legalistic? What did you make of the court's approach? Well, my my, my sense of these cases, and and again, I'm I'm in the presence of a few lawyers here, so I, I, I present this tentatively, but my sense is that there are the technical legal questions, but in a sense, we're debating as a country who we want to be and what we want to be. And and whatever decision comes out of this case, that, that's going to be with us. And uh, it's a global world and these issues aren't going away. And so I, I hope, my hope is that uh, those deeper questions stay on our radar. And I, I'm, I'm pretty confident they will, but I hope we respond in a way that is our best selves as, a, as America, not... Uh, not some lesser version that that often surfaces in our history that is afraid of you know people from or against people from uh, who are foreign or different or in some way. Right. I want to focus on just one legalistic question and ask what your response would be. So you heard we don't we don't have to go through the whole ins and outs of the case, but there is a technical argument about whether the administration went through the the right process and right reasoning to rescind. And one of the arguments that some of the justices made were, so what's the big deal here? I I forget, was it Gorsuch you talked about? Why should we play ping pong with them? Why should we reverse just so they can get it right? And I actually thought that your lawyer, Janet, had a great answer on that in rebuttal, explaining that if they, it's very, very important if the administration wants to take this step, that it be held politically accountable for it. That right now they've set themselves up in a position of pleasing the the people who want to uh, rescind the program, but arguing to others, well, our hands were tied and we had no choice, as opposed to actually taking political responsibility. Any comments on that basic legal argument about why we should go through the process of just pushing it back to the administration? Look, we have the Administrative Procedure Act for a reason. And, and the, the reason is so that there are rules that the executive branch has to follow. And under the government's position in this case, it's kind of like, look, it was no big deal. We should be allowed to go ahead and do this, and it really uh, doesn't matter, even if the the reason why we did it was legally flawed. And, you know, if the court accepts that, they have then created a major exception to the rules that the executive agencies have had to follow for decades now. And so... You know, those are some of the legal issues that arise in the DACA litigation, irrespective of human interests involved. And Harry, I think this goes to another core aspect of who we are as a country. We're a country dedicated to the rule of law, and our government is powerful and can do a lot of things, including with regard to immigration, but it has to respect the law when it acts and is... uh, Janet, who knows this well as her experience as a cabinet secretary herself, says uh, the Administrative Procedure Act limits how the government can act even when it can act. And, and that, too, is a critical principle. 
Okay, we're almost out of time. A couple of you have discussed both in the legislative efforts and otherwise your steadfast commitment to these, to the Dreamers, to the DACA students. However, the court opinion comes out, which, as Chris says, may be as soon as this month. What what happens to your DACA students if the court holds for the administration and what plans are in place to respond? Well, for those who have renewed DACA status, so they're able to renew for periods of two years, we'll make sure that their rights under their renewal status are protected for those who have lost status as DACA or are not able to enter the program, even though they otherwise would be eligible, you know, the, the, the first thing that happens is they lose their work authorization. And these, these students are primarily from poor families. They need to be able to work. And so we are trying to identify um, how we can provide financial support for these students, which is a difficult question, but we're working on it. And and then, you know, the fear of being picked up by ICE uh, now that they're not in a, a legal status is, particularly in this administration, going to be there with them. We will provide as much support and protection and safety on our campuses as uh, we can. We've been very strong about that. But Nonetheless, uh, these these um, young people are, are going to be living with that concern. That's why if the court rules against us, or even I think if it rules for us, uh, we still need Congress to uh, step in and put these protections permanently in statute. And, you know, while they're doing that, maybe address some of the other critical flaws in our current immigration uh, statutory scheme. Yeah, I agree with all of that. There are obviously no easy answers here. If the court rules uh, against us, uh, all of us are involved with this litigation because it does matter to the students and uh, other people who are affected by the case. And I agree affirmatively and enthusiastically with what Janet said at the end of her uh, answer, we we need to get legislation that not only protects the rights conferred by DACA, but does more than that and gives these uh, honest, deserving Americans who have known no other home through most of their lifetime a path to citizenship in this country, which would be good for them and good for us. Completely agree with that. I think that's the way. Thank you very much to Chris, John, and Janet. Really, what a special honor for us and service to the university to have had the presidents of three esteemed universities uh, talk to us together about the DACA case and about their approaches to the coronavirus. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. Please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Fed Pod to find out about future episodes and other Fed-related content. And you can find us on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, 
As long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman and Rosie Phillips are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Sam Trachtenberg. Thanks, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.